So if we've never met, my name's Mark, you know, uh, one of the pastors here, not on staff, but one of the pastors here. And so um, I oversee the Sunday night ministry with Pastor Zach as well. So we've got a young crowd, but everyone's welcome on Sunday nights. And so, um, but we're going to be in 2 Timothy today. And dare I say, we're going to be talking about one of the most important concepts in the Christian faith. So I know you were hoping to be light and fluffy. Um, it's going to be, it is the, arguably the most important concept in the Christian faith. Um, and so I'm going to pray real fast. We're going to get started. I need help. You need help. And so we'll pray for that and then we'll get going. Sound good? All right. So Jesus, we just, uh, above all, we just pray that you be glorified in this time, that uh, the opening of the word would mean the opening of hearts. Um, Holy Spirit, I can be diligent to teach, but, but ultimately you're the one that embeds this message in the hearts of your people. And so would you stir up something in this church today? Would you stir up something in this body of believers today? that we would see you even higher and more lifted up, Jesus, that we'd see you as even more precious and, and, and more beautiful, that, that our affections for you would be stirred up. Holy Spirit, I need your empowering grace to teach, as I physically don't necessarily feel strong, and ironically, we're talking about being strong today, so that's a sweet juxtaposition, but um, pray for the opening of hearts again, that, that people would hear the message received from you, not from me. Anything from me be discarded, everything from you be embedded in our hearts. And so, Jesus, be high and lifted up. We commit this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're talking about one of the most important concepts in the Christian faith, and I had you open up to Second Timothy and I want to begin by introducing us to the two men involved, essentially, in this letter, the author and the recipient. Now, we all know that, that God authors Scripture and that he uses men to pen it. And, and it's interesting that if you, if you look at, in 2 Timothy 1, it begins like this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Check this out, verse 3, he says, I thank God, whom, listen to this, I serve with a pure conscience. Look, if there's anyone in the Bible that should not have a pure conscience, it's Paul. That was not his birth name. He was born Saul. He was born Saul. He was born an Israelite. He was born a Roman citizen. It says in Philippians 3, 5 that he was circumcised the eighth day, which means he was in accordance with the Levitical law. It says that he was the stock of Israel. He was a direct descendant of Abraham, which means he was by birthright under God's covenant. It says that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a distinguished tribe that gave Israel its first king. A Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he was not one of the Hebrews that assimilated into the Greek culture. He stayed within the Hebrew context of culture. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee, what does it mean to be a Pharisee? It means that Paul never went over 65 miles an hour on the 101. That's <laughs> what it means. That is the modern translation of the original language. Is that he never went a mile over the speed limit. He never changed lanes without a blinker. When making a right turn, he never went into the second lane. I'm a motorcyclist. That one's particularly offensive to me. Okay. He pulled into the first lane, waited till the solid line was done, and it went back to the dots, put on his blinker and changed lanes and didn't speed. Under all the laws of the Old Testament, hundreds, he didn't break them. The Bible tells us before the law, he was blameless. Blameless. Circumcised. Stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. And he studied under Gamaliel. High authority in the Sanhedrin. He studied under the best professor at MIT. He did his doctorate at Harvard. He did his third doctorate at Yale for fun. 
He was a brilliant, absolutely brilliant mind. He had a commanding knowledge of philosophy and religion. And he was a complete and utter terrorist when it came to the church. He was an utter, relentless, unabashed persecutor of the church. He was the church's number one enemy. And he never came face to face with Jesus on earth. He never came across Jesus and Jesus' public ministry on earth. But he did meet Jesus. But before that, he oversaw the stoning of whom? Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He was not just a Pharisee that sat off in his room with books stacked to the ceiling, ushering decrees and writing good papers and blogging about it. He came out of his room, he came down to the streets, he went out into the outskirts of town, and he witnessed stonings. He didn't just approve of them from his ivory tower. He oversaw them in person. So that the Jews came to him and they laid all their garments at his feet. Stephen, tied to a stake, with his eyes raised, Saul looks at him and he looks at the crowd of Jews with boulders. These aren't cute rocks. And he says, on with it. On with it. Death with Christians. To the grave with Christians. To hell with this church thing. On with it. Stone him. That's the one that we have recorded. He likely oversaw many stonings. He very well could have overseen tons of stonings of Christians. Of the stoning of Stephen, it says, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It says, now Saul was consenting to his death. He authorized it. Consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and make great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering every house, door to door, street by street, block by block, dragging men and women from their homes. He was there for it. He Loved that. He didn't have to be there. He wanted to be there. As they drug Christians from their homes, it says dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And then Jesus shows up. Don't you love when Jesus goes all gangster on people in the Bible? Now, he, now, now Saul never encountered Jesus in his public ministry. But Jesus showed up. And, and, and God himself describes this better than I could, so I'll just read it. Acts 9, 1 through 9 says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder. When have you said that about a friend? Right? Like, man, my buddy Mike, he just breathes threats and murder. That is the best he could do to describe. He just simply breathed murder against the church. It was every breath of Saul was about the death of the church. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He says, I need letters from the religious authorities. He says, when I'm on my trip, I'm going to be grabbing men and women from their houses. I'm going to hog time and throw them in a trailer. I need the authority to do that. This is Saul, a terrorist to the church. 
And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Jesus shows up. Like a kid with a magnifying glass and an ant. And it says this. It says, And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. You know when your parents said your name twice? Saul, why are you persecuting? He didn't say church. He didn't say Christians. He didn't say Jews. He didn't say Jerusalem. What did he say? Why are you persecuting me? You mess with the church, you get Jesus. He said, why are you persecuting me? And now Jesus has every right to launch into all Saul's offenses at this point. Strike him dead. Go into his whole past, every dirty thing he's done. Jesus has every right. Jesus is in heaven. The cross has already happened. He's died for every sin ever. Jesus shows up. Paul says, who are you, Lord? I love that quote. Who are you, Lord? Because in the presence of Jesus, the wise become fools, yeah? He's just trying to find anything to say. He says, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, it's Paul, or Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? And Jesus said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Three days without water, you're on the brink of death. Jesus cracks open heaven shines down on Saul. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? From the stoning of Stephen to the terrorism your community gets the church. But notice, Jesus went into none of that. The idea is this. It's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus is calling you to do. Some of you drag a massive past into church this morning. I can't serve till I get some things straightened out. I've got a past that doesn't allow me to. I don't think I'm worthy. I don't think I'm justified. I've got doubts. I've got unbelief. I don't think I have purpose. Jesus shows up and says, it has nothing to do with what you've done. It's about what you're being called to do. Stop. Stop. Your past affects you. I get it. And it's not that we can forget it, but stop using it to influence your future. Of all the guys that should have a dirty conscience, it's Paul. Born from Saul. But Jesus shows up and says, said and done with. This morning he shows up, he says, look, you're past till right now, said and done with. It's about what you're being called to do now. Go forward. And Paul has this radical testimony absolute radical testimony and he's converted because when you meet Jesus everything changes and suddenly Paul's on mission now he's preaching the gospel now he's planting churches now he's encouraging churches from his times in prison he goes on three long missionary journeys these aren't cute missionary journeys these aren't American missionary journeys where we shack up in a hotel near an impoverished city hand out water for four days and go home and tell them how it was life-changing. And it lasts about two days. And then you're right back to the same mentality. These were long, grueling, missionary journeys, empowered by God himself. Shipwrecked three times. I'm gone after the first one. Nope, God doesn't want me to be a missionary. Not once. Not twice. Three times shipwrecked. One time he makes it to shore and a snake bites him. 
I don't do snakes. God doesn't want me to be a missionary. I don't do snakes after. I don't do mission after that. He was stoned for the gospel. Saul, who oversaw the stoning of Stephen, a persecutor of the church, is now stoned as Paul, persecuted as the church. Radical testimony. He goes on to write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, authored by God, penned by man. More than any other writer. And if anything screams from Saul to Paul's testimony, it's that it doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what Jesus is calling you to do now. And he's writing to this fella, Timothy. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. Paul was likely who brought Timothy such encouragement. He was one of, he was one of Timothy's pastors. He brought him such joy. Timothy poured into Paul. Paul poured into Timothy. He said, I, just re- I remember in my night and day in my prayers, greatly desiring to see you. They have this sweet, tender relationship, being mindful of your tears. Paul knows Timothy's innermost fears. They were in discipleship. They were in a pastoral role. Paul knew that he cried at night. And he says this, he says, that I may be filled with joy. Check this out, verse five. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Isn't that cute? It's like, Timothy, you've been a Christian your whole life. It's genuine. Like you were, your grandma was a Christian. Your mom was a, like, Tim's a young guy. He's been, in, he's been in faith his whole life. He's got what's in theological terms known as a boring testimony. <laughs> boring testimony. You're looking at a guy that has a boring testimony. I, I honestly, I'm very rare in Calvary Chapel. Like, was it drugs? I've never done them. No, no. Alcohol? No, I didn't drink till 23. Just, I don't have a radical testimony. They're like, well, when did God grip you? When did you know you were sick? I don't know. I just kind of always was there at church. And my, my, my dad is a pastor for 40 years. He loves my mom. They've got a great relationship. I've got brothers and sisters. Everyone loves, serves in the church. Everyone loves and serves Jesus. I don't have a radical testimony. I have a boring testimony. And Paul, with this radical testimony, is writing to Timothy with this very boring testimony. Here's the thing. We praise Jesus for radical testimonies, and we praise Jesus for boring testimonies, right? Here's the irony. The people with radical testimonies wish theirs was more boring. God, why don't you spare me from that? That guy had it great. And the irony is that the boring people are like, I wish I had something cooler to talk about. I wish I could get up there and talk about how Jesus just came and smacked me around one time. Or I got shipwrecked on the way to Catalina or something. I don't know. Like, we're just... And between these two, we praise Jesus for the entire spectrum of testimony. Whether it's radical and Jesus showed up and had to smack you around a bit from heaven, or whether you just grew up in a faith and you've always known and loved and served Jesus. Praise God. I had a gal come up after the first service. She's like, I've never heard it like that. I have a boring testimony. Everything makes sense now. (laughs) She's like, I just always wish I had more stuff to talk about. Talk about that. Talk about that. And so he's writing to Timothy, who's just had this faith, and his grandma had this faith, and his mom had his faith. But Timothy still had issues. Timothy had issues that come with a lifelong faith. And so Paul over and over and over and over and over and over tells Timothy to be strong, to stand up, to hold fast, to not be ashamed. 25 times, just Timothy, come on. Timothy is likely a church administrator of some sort. We don't know specifically if he was a pastor, if he was a deacon, but he was on church staff. And you always think those are the guys that had it figured out. And they go home at night and they cry. They do. 
And so he's writing to Timothy, but he's got to push him. He's got to press him on this because that's a lot of times what people with boring testimonies struggle with. And so you're going to see it over and over. And it says this in verse six, it says, therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then verse seven, it says, for God, and he sees Tim's, dare I say, timidity. He's a timid guy. Paul has to press into him from prison, by the way. And this is the last letter that Paul would pen before his head gets lopped off. And he's still pouring into the church. Like Paul loved writing from prison. He was that guy. He's like, all right, good to see you, buddy. Who's next shift? Maximus, hey, get in, have a seat. And they would chain him to Paul. And they're like, brother, I'm not going to watch him tonight. I'll do double shift for you next week. They come in, hey, Paul. He's like, have a seat, buddy. Did you think about what we talked about last time? Got 12 hours on this shift. Let me tell you about Jesus again. Paul wasted no minute, no minute, went to work. He's like, in prison, outstanding. Get in here, Maximus, right? People are like, who's Maximus? He's imaginary, relax, okay? <laughs> he's a big strapping, he's a you know, linebacker or something, right? And so Paul says this, from prison, he says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. He knew that Tim had fear in his faith. He had a faith his whole life and he struggled with fear. So he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Here's what's crazy. When power comes from the world, it's used to control people. When power comes from God, it's used to love people. When you have an increasing love for people, you know you're tapped into the power of God. When you have an increasing frustration with people, that's power that comes from the world. And trust me, we get frustrated. It's okay to be frustrated. But that growing day-by-day love for people, your friends, your family, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, that, that slowly at times, but expanding love for people, that's when you're tapped into the power of God. But when you want to move farther and farther away from people, you want more people to do your bidding, you want your employees to shut up and do what they're told, you want, to sit, you want your wife to not nag you, you want your kids to just be quiet, That's because you're gripping to a power that says you're in control. And he says, when the power of God manifests itself, it'll be in love and of sound mind. And people say, how do I I see a, a sound mind? What does that look like? I tell people, scroll through Facebook comments. It's the opposite of that. Whatever people, however people are talking on Facebook, do the opposite of that nonsense. I've never seen anyone in a comment thread come to Jesus. Never seen anyone with a comment thread go, you know what? I am absolutely wrong. I started this thread thinking one thing. I was completely wrong. I've changed my position and I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just ravenous. Christians too, just tearing people apart on Facebook. Out of control at times. Look, when you're tapped into the power of God and he causes you to love people, look, you just don't talk. You've got a sound mind. You've got a calm and collected demeanor because you're reflecting a God that's calm and collected and in control. When you serve that God instead of yourself, you come out with a sound mind. And so Paul's imploring him. He says, look, he's not giving us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Verse eight says, therefore, he's got to tell the guy on the church staff this. Right? Like, think about it. You walk up to Pastor Brett, you're like, hey, Brett, don't be ashamed of the gospel, homie. Right? He's like, hmm. Right? Paul writes to the church administrator, and he says, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. And here's where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get us to chapter two, but it's kind of like skipping a rock on a lake. I'm going to kind of through the chapter. Does that make sense? And the sound effect was epic. I know. So check this out. And so he says this in verse nine, he says, do not, verse eight, who is, do not be ashamed of the testimony. Verse nine, he says, who has saved us, speaking of the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Praise Jesus. You should clap. Everyone clap. Not according to our works. Thank you. Because our works are awful. And it says this, it says, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and what? Grace. Grace. His purpose through his grace. His purpose gets accomplished through his grace. 
his purpose through his grace. I love this, verse 13, it says, hold fast, Timothy. He's constantly encouraging Tim to have a spine. Stand up, hold fast, don't be ashamed. You've been called for a holy calling and God's gonna power you through it. He says, hold fast to the pattern of sound words in faith and in love. Verse 14, it says he'll be kept by the Holy Spirit. Flip over to chapter two, I wanna camp here. And he begins chapter two with this. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Three things, be strong. Be strong in grace that comes in Jesus. It says, Timothy, be strong in the grace that's in Jesus. When you're in Jesus, you receive grace and then you're made strong. You don't become strong on your own and accept Jesus. You're in Jesus, which means he doles out his grace, which is where you find your strength. Be strong in the grace in Jesus. But we've cheapened grace. And we know that grace is this, and it's absolutely true, but this tends to be where we stop. We know that mercy, first and foremost, is not receiving what you should, yes? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Agreed? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Agreed? So mercy, when God withholds something from you, that's merciful. But he doesn't stop there. He's not a God of only mercy. I'm just not going to give you what you deserve. He's also going to give us what we don't deserve to accomplish his purpose, his mission. But that tends to be where we stop. And I've taught on grace before, and I'm going to teach on it again. Because this is, though all the concepts in scripture are important, this is perhaps the most important. And it cannot be exhausted. God's grace cannot practically be exhausted. It cannot from a pulpit be exhausted. It cannot in your life be exhausted. But a lot of times we just simply know that grace is getting what I don't deserve. But how does that affect tomorrow morning at the office? How does that affect family reunions? How does that affect your prayer life? How does that affect your faith, your strength? Because he says, be strong in grace. What does that look like? And how does Jesus get it to me? And so what I want to do is take a look at concepts of grace. And Paul knows that as Timothy's pastor, this is one of the most important things he could give to him. John 1, 14 through 17 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace your translation may say grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus gives grace. And it says grace for grace, grace upon grace. And, and we as American Christians think that the Bible's being redundant. Grace upon grace. Okay, it's just emphasizing grace. I would submit to you that it's actually two categories. If I told you I'm going to give you a paycheck upon your paycheck, what did you just hear? Two paychecks, right? Not a single one of you is like always being redundant. So when we hear grace upon grace, two types of grace. There's only two? No, there's two buckets. One is common grace, which we don't have time to go into except this. Common grace is experienced by everyone. Everyone take a deep breath. It's, my, it's your breath in my lungs. We sang that, right? So you just sing it. When you sing that, you're singing about God's common grace. You're singing about God's common grace. These are things that all people can experience regardless of their faith in Jesus or not. Atheists experience common grace. That's why when they come before Jesus, he says, look, I showed you. Sorry, I showed you. I didn't know. Yeah, you did. You experienced it. Every breath, every rain, 
Every time you eat, the Bible speaks of these things as signs of God's common grace. Things that he pours out, as the Bible says, on the just and the unjust alike. Common grace. But now we have saving grace. Grace upon grace. Everyone gets common grace. Those who accept Jesus have layered on this bucket of saving grace. Now this is for Christians. Now this is for Christians. There's probably 1,044 of these dimensions or 387 billion. I've got 12 because I'm not that bright. We're going to go through 12 dimensions of this saving grace that Jesus ushers in, in the fullness of grace and truth. And I want to show you how grace empowers you every step of the way to be strong in grace in Jesus. Because when you are in Jesus, he will, via grace, make you strong. Here's how. Some of you are dealing with uncertainty in your faith. You're uncertain about your place before God. You're uncertain if it's even a real faith or if it's just religion, if it's just showing up to church. Am I actually in faith? You're uncertain in your faith. And for you this morning, God has electing grace. Knowledge of this truth that in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, it says, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us And called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, we clap for that, but according to his own purpose and grace. He elected you how? Through grace. Which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. See, people do this all the time, and I used to not have an answer. Like, when were you saved? Tell me about that. I'm like, I don't know. I got a boring testimony. I've just always known Jesus, but now I have an answer. They're like, when were you saved? I'm like, so simple, before time began. (laughs) Like, are you one of those? Yeah, yeah, I'm one of those. When were you saved? Before time began. Now, you may have realized your salvation on this earth. That may be what you consider to be your salvific moment. But you need to know that your salvific moment from the mind of God was before there was even you. He said, he will be saved. God said, she will be saved. And here's the thing, and I was teaching at the youth camp last night, and I told him, I said, look, and I did a lot of yelling, because let's be honest, this next generation needs a lot of yelling, okay? (laughs) I am happy to shoulder that weight for you. It's fun for me, okay? But one of the things I told them was that one of the most loving things I could tell them was that God does not need them, but God wants them. See, there, there was, like, you could just see it, a shock on your face, too. It was like, hold on. Jesus loves me, this I, right? Like you're just, what do you mean God doesn't need me? God didn't create us for fellowship. He didn't create us because he needed fellowship with us. He created us because he wanted us. Look, people are like, how do you justify it? I'm like, same thing with kids. Carissa and I did not need kids. We don't. They are a drain on your time, energy, resources. <laughs> we would go to Tahiti every year if we didn't have kids. Why even have them? They're going to sin against you. Oh, why did God create us? Though he knew he would sin against him. These are the things you don't, it's tough to struggle with until you're a parent. We didn't need Ethan. We didn't need Asher. We didn't need our baby girl that we just found out that we're going to be having. We didn't, we didn't need our kids. I could go to my job without my kids. I can drive my bike without my kids. I can pay the bills. I can run a business. I can do all that. But we wanted kids. God wants kids. And so he saved us and called us before time began. Perhaps you're struggling with uncertainty in your faith. Be strong in the grace of God. You have been chosen. And people say, how do I know if I'm elect? If you love Jesus, you're elect. How do I know if I've been elected? Do you love Jesus? I do. You're elect. By the way, do you know who's not asking the question, am I elect? People who aren't elect. (laughs) When when you raise, there's only certain people are elected. They're like, but if it stirs in you even to hear elect, that God chooses to save, if that even stirs up a flutter in your heart, that's evidence that you are saved. You are elect. And I can't be the mediator of that. That's between you and God. But he chose you. If you're uncertain in your faith, 
Be strong in the grace of God. He chose you in Jesus. For some of you, you're struggling with ungodly desires. You're struggling with ungodly desires. Your thoughts, your words, your deeds, sins of commission, sins of omission. You do what you're not supposed to do. You don't do what you are supposed to do. The things you don't want to do, you do. The things you're supposed to do, you don't want to do. Ungodly desires in our hearts. Men, the games we play in our head. Ladies, the comparisons you draw in your head. Recently, I read a study from a very large church that did a survey of, of what women struggle with. And this is fascinating for me because I have no clue what goes on up there for y'all. And so... The, the most reoccurring thing that women in the church struggled with, and maybe that's just their church, maybe it's not here, maybe all you women are just so secure in yourselves. You don't compare yourself to other women. When they walk by in the mall, they come into the gym, you don't think a second thought, but I see you at the gym. You rubberneck it worse than the guys do, ladies. But guys, the lust, the greed, some of you struggle with anger. Some of you struggle with all sorts of ungodly desires. For you, God is regenerating grace. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. See, you thought you were in charge of changing this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. This is Old Testament. Holy Spirit, still there. I will put my spirit within you and what? Ask you? See if it's a good idea. See if you could get on board. No, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. When you tap into the regenerating grace of God, and I, and I spoke with a woman after this, I said, this is to be a specific prayer in your life. These dimensions of grace. Call on Jesus specifically. Jesus, I'm, I'm dealing with these unclean desires. Regenerate my heart. Regenerate my heart. Cause me to walk in your statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Why? Because God's in charge of that. God provides the motive. God provides the thrust. It's on us but to accept that grace. So if you're dealing with those ungodly desires, pray for the regenerating grace of God because Jesus wants to give it to you. And so... Again, if you're struggling with ungodly desires, be strong in the grace of God. You're being regenerated in Jesus. Perhaps you're struggling with a lack of repentance. Ah, sensitive little bugger. A lack of repentance. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God, this is fascinating. We've done repentance wrong in the church. Check this out. If God perhaps will, what? Demand of them repentance? Wait for them to muster up enough energy to repent? What does he say? I'll grant them repentance. See, some of you have been trying to muster up repentance. I need to repent of this sin. I need to figure, I need to stop. I need to, I need to, I need to stop this. Now it's based on your works again. Rather than saying, I can't repent on my own. I need it to be granted to me. Jesus is up there with repentant grace saying, I will give you the ability to repent. We think, we think of all things. God is in charge of all things, but the one thing I need to do is repent. And Jesus is like, I'll just give it to you, right? And we act like that's the thing. We're gonna muster up all our courage. I likened it in the first service to like, you buy your kid a thing of fries because my kids live on fries. Can, can daddy have one of those? No, they're mine. Kid, you have no idea where those fries come from. And who gave them to you? This is mine now. Repentance is mine now. Jesus says, no, that was a gift I gave you. You hold on to it like that's what you need to do. No, that's what you need to accept. That's the whole gospel, that we're flattened and unable if we but receive from him. And so grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Some of you, again, are dealing with lack of repentance in your faith. Be strong 
in the grace of God, repentance is a gift. Some of you are struggling with feelings of doubt in your faith. Feelings of doubt, especially if you grew up in the church like me. Is it even a faith or am I just religious? Because the Pharisees went to church more than anyone. It didn't work out well for them. My word. Feelings of doubt in your faith. It says this exhorting disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed. How did they believe? Through grace. Through grace. Say, God did everything. He's super amazing. But at least I believed. Jesus said, the belief I gave you? Give me those fries back. (laughs) I gave you your faith. No, that's mine. I mustered up the courage. Show me that in the Bible. Believed. How did they believe? Through grace. Some of you are struggling. Feelings of doubt. Be strong in the grace of God knowing that God has given you your belief in Jesus. Perhaps you're struggling with feeling a need to earn favor before God. For you, God sends converting grace. This is how it happens. It says, for by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is the propulsion and faith is the medium that God delivers his salvation. Grace pushes faith through the channel of Jesus Christ and slugs it into your heart and you're saved. And we grip to that like that's what we did for God. But I had faith. You are welcome, God. And he says, seriously? And that not of yourselves? It is a gift of God. You're you're holding so tight, almost as a work, that you did this for me when I just gave it to you. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. We know we're saved by grace, and we still boast. Could you imagine if we were saved by works? This world would be exponentially more awful. The church would be exponentially more abusive. Not of works lest any man should boast. Some of you are struggling with feeling a need to earn favor before God. Be strong in the grace of God, knowing that your faith is a gift in Jesus. Perhaps, is he really going on? Yep, we got more. So perhaps you're struggling with feeling condemned in your faith. Perhaps you're struggling with feeling condemned in your faith. You've drugged your past here today and your non-believing friends remind you of that past. They remind you of that. Seriously? You're going to go before God? Bro, I was there in college. Bro, I was there at work. I was there at girls' night. You're going to go before the Holy God? You're you're looking at me. You're going to go before God? justifying grace for all have sinned and in the original language it's a little tricky all means all that was not that hard okay for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god all being justified freely how by his grace through the redemption that is in christ Jesus. You will constantly see in Christ Jesus, in Jesus. The term Christian is used but two or three times in the New Testament. In Christ is the way it is described as the church. Hundreds of times in the New Testament, we are described as in Christ. This is something we are in, not just a label we hold. This is something we are in. And again, when you are in Jesus, he pours out grace where we receive our strength. And so, if you feel condemned in your faith, he says, all have fallen short. You've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And if this takes place in a courtroom, the next one takes place in a living room. Some of you struggle with feeling unloved 
unwanted, out of place in your faith. And for you, God sends adopting grace. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There's that answer again. When were you saved? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his what? His grace. That he gives you adoption though we don't deserve it. By which he made us accepted in the beloved. That's why adoption is such an epic picture of the gospel. That's why adopting a little boy or girl is such an epic picture of the gospel. And again, adoptive parents will tell you, it's not because they needed that kid. It's that they wanted that kid. God didn't need us. He's perfect and holy and self-sustaining in and of himself in the Trinity. He's got Jesus. He's got the Holy Spirit. That's his team. Independent of us. He didn't need to create us, so he had friends. But he wanted to create us. He wants to have a relationship with us. Just an adoptive parent comes in and says, look, I don't need a child necessarily, but I want one. Don't you want that? Don't you want that in a spouse? Like you get up on the altar, it's just like, you know, why you guys do this? I need her, right? And we kind of take it a romantic way, but it's, no, I, said, I want you. I could do life on my own, but I want you. I want to share that love. And God says, I've adopted you, and we've all been adopted. So if you're feeling unneeded, unloved, unwanted, out of place, know that God swoops in. And look, he didn't, he didn't survey the world and say, I'm going to pick out all the, the good kids. Do you notice that? What do you say? He said, I'm going to go in, I'm going to go pick some fools to confuse the wise people. I'm going to use the, 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 the foolish things of this world to, confuse, to confound the wise. I'm going, to pick, I'm going to pick the one in the back corner of the adoption room banging his head on the wall. And that's me, by the way, in the illustration. Some of you are like, I'm going to take offense at that. Right? That's me. He picked me out, the kid in the back, just railing my head against the wall, going back to my sin over and over and over. So God is adopting grace. If you feel unloved, unwanted, out of place, be strong in the grace of God. You've been adopted into God's family in Jesus. Perhaps you're feeling unnecessary in your faith. Uh Uh-oh. You're feeling unnecessary. Am I just showing up to church? Am I just doing the church thing? Is it really, I mean, is it really adding anything to my life? It's taking a couple hours out of my weekend. Is there any purpose? I'm not on staff. I'm not either, by the way. Is Is it, am I really, is, is it, would anyone notice if I leave? Probably would if you were running a ministry. If you were serving. And here's the crazy thing. Now, now I'm responsible for teaching the truth. You're responsible for what you do with it. And so when it says, as each one of you has received, each one of you, in the original language means, (laughs) each one, don't hide in the corner either next time. Okay, right? So each one of you, you're responsible for this truth now, has received a gift. Didn't say might receive a gift. Has already been done. You've all received a gift. Minister it. That's the question. The question is not do you have a ministry. It's are you using it? Are you using it? If you have questions about this, come up and talk to some of the pastors. We'd love to get you plugged in. If you can stand working with little snotty, drooly, little crazy, annoying kids, you should head over to the children's ministry. Okay, they're glorious. They're great, glorious inconveniences, kids. They really are. And my wife is director of children's ministry. So you got a problem with her, you ultimately get me. Just remember that, okay? <laughs> Could you serve over there? Could you serve in the, I, I was the same as Jonathan. I pulled in this morning. I'm like, those, that's not John Marcinka in the parking lot. There's new faces in the parking lot. There are things that need to be done. And the Bible says you've all been given a gift. The only question is, are you ministering it? Are you ministering it to one another as good stewards as the manifold what? Grace of God. 
gives everyone a ministry. The only question is whether or not you're being a good steward of it. And so if you're feeling out of place or unnecessary in your faith, be strong in the grace of God. Use your gifts to minister to those around you to show them Jesus before you. Perhaps you're struggling with habitual sin in your faith. We go back to it. The Bible says like a dog returns to its vomit. And it's supposed to be a disgusting picture. The things that I don't want to do, I do them. The things I do want to do, I don't do them. The sin of omission, the sin of commission. For you, in Jesus, sanctifying grace. For sin shall not have dominion. Some of us here are ruled by sin, not by Jesus. It's not that those who are in Jesus won't have sin, but they will not be ruled by it. Sanctifying grace. You will never be sinless, but by the sanctifying grace of God, you will sin less. Why? Because it's not you mustering up the courage to stop sinning. Because it's God who's working in you to show others him. And so God is regenerating your heart and justifying you after he's already elected you. And now he pushes you forward in your walk in this process of sanctifying grace and where sin no longer has dominion over you for you are not under law, but under grace. Grace. And Paul goes on in other books to say, look, should I just keep sinning so that there can be more grace? By no means. By no means. But where sin abounds, grace abounds even greater because God then works in and among his people to sanctify them. And so some of you come here with habitual sin and I've been there and I'm still there. But when you tap into Jesus, say, I'm in Jesus, Jesus, sanctify me from this. Regenerate my heart in accordance with your word, Ezekiel 36. Regenerate my heart and sanctify me, not for my glory, not so the people to see Mark stopped his sin, so that people see that Jesus defeated sin sanctifying grace so if you struggle with habitual sin be strong in the grace of God sin is no longer your master and the thing back there says time's up which means nothing second service okay so check this out (laughs) no time limit (laughs) I gotta teach at 630 we might as well just hang out all right and so some of you are struggling with laziness what there's nowhere in the Bible where God talks about that. Okay, cool. Perhaps you're struggling with laziness. Work, school, home, ministry, marriage, parenthood, power and grace. This is one of my favorite. This is one of my favorites. This combats laziness in the church. I don't care what Apple is doing. I don't care what Microsoft is doing. They should be caring what the churches are doing. They should see more creativity out of the church. Why? Because we actually serve the creator. And this combats laziness in your life, in your ministry, in your marriage. How so? It says, but by the grace of God, and this is Paul speaking, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we actually use that like, look, this is just how I am. I just don't do that. I just don't like work hard. It's just not, I'm under grace, bro. I'm under grace. Which grace are you talking about? It's not under the law. I don't have to do ministry. We've gone over ministry grace. Get to work. Let's go. Let's do something. Why on earth do I get better training in the business world than I do in a church? Get stuff done. Bleed the day. Get things out of it. I learned that in the Marine Corps. I'll get a lot of stuff done in a day in the Marine Corps before people are even awake in America. Empowering grace. It says, look, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But watch where he goes here. I am who I am. Trust me. It ain't going to be about me. That's how he sets this up. He says, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Who's he talking about? Pagans? Jews? Who's he talking about? The disciples. Paul goes, 
because I'm so tapped into the empowering grace of God, I'm working harder than the disciples, the church. That's epic. You guys are clearly not as excited about this one as I am. <laughs> Woo. Abundantly then they all, yet it's not me. It's not I. But the grace of God that is in me. Some of you at your work tomorrow morning, you need to have the most radical Monday morning of your career because you've been going on fumes. You've been driving on empty for decades because you didn't even think to tap into the empowering grace of God because we, to be honest, as a church in America have failed to even teach it. The empowering grace of God. Will God make me a better employee? You better believe it. You better believe it. I go right back Monday morning meetings tomorrow. Bam, I'm on a conference call with the PR team in New York. I want people to say, dude, you get a ton done. You do your job well. You have side businesses. You have a family. How on earth do you do that? Let me tell you how I do it. Whoa, door just opened for a conversation. How do you do it? Do you drink Red Bull? What's your deal? (laughs) Empowering grace. Some of you are dealing with laziness, frustration, lack of productivity. Look, God is a productive God. Jesus came and what, did he, what was he for 18 years? A contractor. Got stuff done. Jesus worked. Mark 7, 37 said he did all things well. He was good at it. People are like, nice porch. The guy down the road, Jesus did it. That's an epic porch. Some of you don't think about him real like that. You think about him floating around in a man dress with pretty hair. <laughs> Children come to me. Think about the Pharisees walking by while Jesus was working on stuff. Walking by judging everyone. And Jesus is down there breaking stone because he was a carpenter in the Middle East. They likely work with stone. Jesus cracking stone while the Pharisees walked around. Too pious for that sort of stuff. Look, my robe is clean. Jesus is dirty as heck building a porch. Empowered by the grace of God. Some of you are dealing with laziness. Be strong in the grace of God. You have access to empowering grace. Perhaps you're struggling to see God's provision in your faith. For you, God has provisional grace. Every good gift and every perfect gift, look, if it's good on this earth, if it's true on this earth, God owns it. If it's good and true on this earth, God owns it. If it's a good gift, if it's a perfect gift, it's from above and it comes down from the Father of lights, which whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. If you have good things in your life, you need to know that God gave them to you. He is watching out for you. It doesn't mean that you won't fall on hard times, but as we've been teaching on Sunday nights through Philippians, look, when your circumstances fail and your happiness fails, there's a joy that catches you. That you understand that God is ultimately taking care of all his kids. And there is that joy and you fall and you hit a peace that surpasses all understanding. And people are confused about it. You're confused about it. It surpasses all understanding. Then you know you're in the safety net of a God who cares for his kids. And so if you lack to see God's provision in your life, be strong in the grace of God, knowing that every good and perfect gift is from Jesus. And perhaps you're struggling, I'll end with this, with seeing the point in your faith. What's the point? I get it, sir, just but to what end? I'm just a dash between two dates on a tombstone. In the arc of history, no one will remember my name. What's the point? I work an average job. I got a good marriage. I've got kids. We don't have much in savings because California drains the living daylights of out of everything that comes in it? What's the point? For you, God sends glorifying grace. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, it's electing grace. Whom he called, these he also justified, that's justifying grace. And whom he justified, those, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up from all, for all, how shall he not with him also freely give us 
all things. The point is that we will be glorified. Not to our glory, but Jesus says, I will give you a body like mine, a glorified body. Jesus stayed on earth 40 days after he ascended from the grave. And people recognized him. They could touch him. They could see his scars. We too will rise. The Bible actually talks of a zombie apocalypse. Most of you have missed that in your study. It actually talks that all the dead will rise and walk, some to life and some to death. And the Bible promises that for those who are in Jesus, we will be raised to glory. Why? Because Jesus was raised to glory and our job is to reflect him. So some of you just think it's just, there's no point. We're just, look, the cross happened thousands of years ago and revelation hasn't happened yet. Stay on mission. Know that God, through his grace, for those who are in Jesus, we will be glorified. We will see him again. And check out how Paul ends this letter. I'll skip over to chapter four. It says this in verse six, because this is the last letter Paul would write before he gets beheaded. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. Christian, are you fighting the good fight? Are you even in a fight? Are we even in a fight? Does it feel like a fight sometimes? Good, good. Something's getting done in a good fight. Complacency kills, by the way. That's the exit sign in Iraq. You pull out, it just says two words. Complacency kills. Complacency kills in the church, it kills in combat. Get in the fight. You may have made the team, but you're sitting on the bench. Get on the field. Serve. Love. He says, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith because Paul was empowered by grace every step of the way. And he says this, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, capital D, because it's going to be an event. See Revelation 19 for that one. It's going to be an event when Jesus returns. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearance. If you love the fact that Jesus showed up and saved you from your sins, you get a crown. And there's two words in the New Testament for the word crown. The first is for royalty. The second is for victory. One is a royal crown. The other is a victor's crown. Paul here uses the word for victor's crown. That word in the original language is Stephanos, where we get the name Stephen. And from the stoning of Stephen to a Stephanos in heaven, God says it has nothing to do with what you've done. And everything with what Jesus is calling you to do now. Leave your past behind with Jesus and eternity before you. Every step of the way, tapping into the channels of God's grace so that you may be strong in grace in Jesus. When you're in Jesus, he will give you grace. That's how you will be strong. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you that you give us so much more than we deserve. You're not just a God of mercy that withholds that which we deserve, but you're a God of grace who gives us what we don't deserve. From predestination to glorification, Jesus, you empower us every step of the way. And I simply pray this, I simply pray that the hearts of your people were stirred, that we see you more highly, more lifted up, for what you have done, not only on the cross and taking the weight of our sin, but in response to that, in response to our rebellion, giving us what we don't deserve, empowering us for your mission to continue what you started, as it says in Acts 1, the things that you began to do and teach, that we would be on mission to continue what you said and taught, what you did and what you taught. Holy Spirit, go to work on your people now. 
Empower them with grace. Encourage them in grace. Make them feel secure and loved and wanted in your grace. Jesus, you love these people. I know you're on a throne right now. And you're smiling because the Holy Spirit gets to go to work and take this message and sink it so deep into the hearts of your people that we're never the same and we never see grace the same again. God, just excite your people, not for a sermon, but for you. Excite your people, put them on mission, not for our glory, but so that people would see Jesus in our day on this earth until you return. It's in your name that we pray.